are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so pleased that you could join me for today's live question and answer. It's a Thursday afternoon, so on a Thursday afternoon, whenever I'm able to, I'm here with you uh, from my home in Santa Barbara, California, or from some other place where I might be hosting a live question and answer program here on my YouTube channel. Uh, What we like to do is come together and people submit their questions or comments in the live chat. I certainly do not claim to have all the answers. That's never my claim. But I can say that I'm happy to share what I might know from the Bible or give you my opinion on things or respond to your comments uh, to the best of my ability. What we like to do on our Thursday question and answer times is begin with a lead question that I have chosen from uh, email, from YouTube comments, from something that comes to us on social media. This particular week, we're doing something a little bit different. I want to deal with a question that came last week in the live chat that I didn't really get to. And I didn't really get to it because I didn't really know the answer. At least I wasn't confident in the answer. I said that I would look it up and I have done some research on that. And I feel a little more confident to give an answer this particular week for this idea for what happened to the Edomites. Let me read you the question that came in last week that I felt, well, let let me take a look at this and I will get to it. And the question is simply this. Uh, Who is the nation of Edom today? Because it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 4, and Isaiah chapter 34, verses 5 through 8, that Jesus will come back to a kingdom ruled by Edom. So they have to be on the earth today. So that's the question. And let me just sort of read to you the relevant passage here. For example, from Isaiah chapter 63, uh, beginning in the first four verses. Now, I'm only going to read to you here uh, the Isaiah chapter 63 passage, because actually the Isaiah chapter 34 passage is very similar. They essentially say the same thing. So Isaiah chapter 63, let me start reading to you now from verse 1. Uh, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Basra was at one time the capital city of Edom and the Edomites. So who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the strength, in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to say, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? By the way, Basra, the name of that city that at one time was the capital city of the Edomites, that that name means winepress. Continuing on, verse um, three, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have strained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. That's the end of verse. So here, what we have is we have a clear, and if you take a look at the broader context, you'll see this is a clear message of the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. We would consider it to apply to the ultimate judgment, when Jesus returns to judge the earth, when Jesus returns at Armageddon, so to speak. So, what's the connection here with Edom, mentioned in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 63, and again also mentioned in a very similar context in Isaiah chapter 34? So, I would disagree that this passage tells us that Jesus will come back to a kingdom ruled by Edom. First of all, 
uh, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1 says that he's coming from Edom. Now, it's true that Edom is mentioned in both Isaiah chapter 63 and in Isaiah chapter 34 in connection to God's ultimate judgment. But this is for a very important reason, because the Edomites were prominent among the nations around Israel that hated Israel. Now, it's fascinating, at least to me, the hatred that the Edomites had for Israel was kind of ironic, because they were uh, descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel and was the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Edomites, descended from Esau, settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River, essentially on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now, in his comments on Isaiah, uh, Boltima gives a good sense of this. He says this, quote, Edom was a sister nation to Israel, but it hated Israel more than any other nation. Throughout all of history, we see a burning hatred of Edom against Israel. It is for this reason that Edom is frequently presented as a representation of all the nations that hated the Jews. Did you get that, what he says? And I would agree with Boltima in his commentary on Isaiah regarding that. He says that Edom is frequently presented as a representation of all the nations that hated the Jews. Therefore, we see that both in Isaiah chapter 63 and Isaiah chapter 34, that Edom is a representative of the nations who are against God and his people. Isaiah is connecting the judgment against the Edomites. Again, if you notice, he says here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 63, who comes from Edom. In other words, he has already judged Edom. Now he's going to bring his judgment against the whole earth. So Edom is a representative of these nations, and the judgment against the Edomites, who were known as those who hated God and his people, is here connected with the ultimate judgment that will happen at the return of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's my understanding, and certainly I'm not alone in that understanding. It's a very common interpretation and understanding of these references to Edom in Isaiah chapter 34 and 63. But that really doesn't answer the question, what happened to the Edomites? Well, let me tell you just straightforwardly, the Edomites were judged by God, such as the prophets said would happen. Prophets such as Obadiah, prophets such as Jeremiah. The, the prophets said that the Edomites would be judged by God, and they were. And, and this happened in a few different phases or periods. First, the Edomites were conquered by the Nabataean Arabs, perhaps as early as 500 BC. Uh, Nelson Gluek, in his book, The Other Side of the Jordan, explains that not all the Edomites left the region of Edom when the Nabataean Arabs took control of the area. Those who did leave the land of Edom, they went to the area of southern Judah, that is, the land on the western side of the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to Masada and the whole area surrounding that, that became the place where many of the refugees from Edom went when they were pushed out of the, uh, their own lands by the Nabataean Arabs who invaded them. Now, this area of southern Judah, it's a very wild wilderness area. Again, if you've ever been to Masada, you know what kind of geography we're talking about. These people became known as Idumeans, and the area became known as Idumea. Now, they also, when they came in, they mixed with people already living in that area, though there weren't a lot, there certainly were people there. When the Idumeans continued 
conflict with the Jewish people in the time of the Maccabees. The Jewish people conquered them, and they assimilated them by force. F.F. Bruce writes in his book, Israel and the Nations, uh, F.F. Bruce is a guy I really appreciate both as a historian and as a Bible commentator. F.F. Bruce writes about how there was conflict and war between the Jewish people and the Idumeans in the time of the Maccabees. That's the period between the end of the Old Testament uh, history and the start of the New Testament. Again, Bruce, regarding the Jewish leader John Hyrcanus, says that around 100 years before the birth of Jesus, I'm going to quote to you now from page 171 of F.F. Bruce's book, Israel and the Nations. He says this, to the south, Hyacanus warred against the Idumeans, who had been such a thorn in the side of the Judeans since the dark days at the end of the southern monarchy. He subjugated them, that is the Idumeans, and compelled them to accept circumcision and thus be formally incorporated as members of the Jewish nation. So the Idumeans that survived that moved over to the west part of the Jordan River, the west side of the Dead Sea, they assimilated into the Jewish population at least a hundred years before the time of Jesus. Now, if you fast forward about 160 years, by the end of the spring in AD 68, the Romans, when they conquered the area of Judah and Moab and all the rest of it, they completely laid waste to Idumea. So this was effectively the end of the Edomite people, who had long been in decline and had long been mixing with the neighboring peoples, again, for a long time. There were still people, not many, but a few, who lived in the area of Edom, on the east side of the Dead Sea. But they were not Edomites in any real sense. The Nabataean Arabs had come in and they dominated the area. And again, though there were surely some Edomites who stayed behind, their uh, genetic presence was far diluted by intermarriage. So there were also still people who lived in the area of Idumea, not Edom, but there's a difference. Edom was on the east side of the Dead Sea. Idumea was on the west side of the Dead Sea. But they, again, were not Edomites in any real sense. The identification had to do more with geography than it had to do with genetics. So let me come back to our original question. So then, what happened to the Edomites? Well, as a genetic people, the descendants of Esau are lost to history. Now, of course, their DNA lives on in some sense. I mean, after all, scientists can go back and find all kinds of genetic markers from ancient peoples, peoples that are long gone. I mean, I don't mean to say this is an equivalent thing at all, but it shows you what genetic scientists can do. They can find traces of Neanderthal uh, genetics, uh, peoples that are far distant from us in time and place. So, of course, Edomite DNA lives on in some sense, but they were so intermixed with other peoples that there is no definable genetic group of Edomites today. But there are some people who take the title. There are some people who want to consider themselves the descendants of Esau. I have not seen any genetic connection, as would be true with the Jewish people. With the Jewish people, they can find genetic markers. You, you can take one of those DNA tests, you know, you spit in a little thing, you send it in, they check your DNA, and they'll tell you, for example, if you have any Jewish ancestry, because they know the genetic markers to look for, for Jewish people. There is no analogous thing for the Edomite. And when Isaiah or the other prophets mention Edom, in connection with future judgment. As we see in Isaiah chapter 34 or 63, 
they are mentioned because they represent the nations that hate Israel and hate Israel's God. Because the Edomites were famous as being those who were close to Israel, but who nevertheless hated them and rejoiced in Israel's calamity, they became known as representatives of those who hate the people of Well, that's the best answer I can give. And I I thank our questioner from last week for his patience in having me come back this week and give a more full answer to that question. uh, What does Isaiah chapter 34 and 63 say about the Edomites and are the Edomites existing? So with that, let me go over now to our side chat. And I will take a look at the questions that have come in there. First of all, Sarah says, Hi, Pastor David. In John chapter 18, verses 4 through 8, it, it is not written that Judas kissed Jesus to identify him, but Jesus identified himself. Can you please share your thoughts? Uh, thank you so much for your teaching. Uh, Sarah, I think that this is a situation that we would find in many biblical accounts, such as accounts having to do with the crucifixion, uh, accounts having to do with the resurrection, that uh, the two don't contradict each other, but they complement each other. We can see Judas, as is mentioned in the other gospel, identifying Jesus with a kiss because it was night, because Jesus wasn't, you know, far taller than any of his uh, other disciples, looked really different, had to identify Jesus. And Judas, ironically, tragically, chose to identify Jesus with a kiss. Uh, We have that. But then we can see as also part of the account, perhaps the uh, captain of the guard, after that identification is being made, wanting to confirm and maybe even get a confession from the person who had been identified as Jesus, Are you, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth? And that's where the record in the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus identified himself in that. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the way that the Gospel of John presents Jesus's arrest in Gethsemane is that John is very conscious to let us know that Jesus was protecting his disciples. As Jesus stepped forth in front of that arresting detachment of soldiers, and after, I would assume, after he was identified by Judas, asked to reveal himself, he reveals himself, and then he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, you have me, let these ones. And I have to say, I I find something very precious. I find it very precious the way that Jesus protected his disciples. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was giving himself up for the sake of his disciples. So I would just put it that way, Sarah. I don't think that the two accounts contradict each other, but they can be seen to complement each other. Let me continue on to the next question. Um, Ruth, thank you. Blessings to you. Jose says, How can we be filled with more and more of the Holy Spirit? Jose, I would say that this comes to a few things. First of all, ask. Ask. Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Make that a conscious prayer every day. Now, when we ask God as believers to fill us with his Holy Spirit, We are not denying that we have been filled before. That isn't the idea at all. The idea is that we need to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That, according to the Greek grammar, is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, in our English versions, it just simply says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But because of the Greek grammar and verb tenses, The sense of Paul there could be more fully expressed as this. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're not trying to deny that we have the Spirit or that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit before. 
but we just recognize that we need a constant supply of God's Spirit. So it's not wrong to expect and to believe that God would continually fill us with His Holy Spirit. So ask. Second thing is this. Look for things in your life that may grieve the Holy Spirit. And because of that so-called grieving the Holy Spirit, that's the phrasing that Paul uses in one of his letters. He says, grieve not the Spirit of God. Surely when we grieve the Spirit of God, we hinder the operation of the Holy Spirit, at least in some way. Now, of course, ultimately, God is going to accomplish his will and Ultimately, nothing can hinder what God wants to do. But th- there is at least the sense on an individual level where Christians need to say, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to any way hinder what God might do in and through. So we ask, we, we ask in faith, we look to our lives to see if there's anything we might be doing that would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then we, we just simply go forth confident relying on Jesus and asking his spirit to fill us. There doesn't have to be anything mystical or magical about it, but I will give you one other thing. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit filling people and God giving gifts to people in the New Testament, and this is also found sometimes in the Old Testament, through what we might call the laying on of hands. It's not wrong to ask other believers perhaps pastors or elders, to lay hands upon you and to pray that you would be filled, and as it says in Ephesians 5, continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's uh, another thing to keep in mind. We, we, We shouldn't think that we can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless people lay their hands upon us. But the Bible just gives us this in another sense, that this is a way that God works too. One of the things I so appreciate about how the Bible speaks of the person and work of the Holy Spirit is that it does it in a sense that keeps us from making a formula out of the work of the Holy Spirit. Friend, when you see somebody making a formula out of the work of the Holy Spirit, do A, B, and C, and the Holy Spirit will always do D. No, there's something wrong with that. There are patterns, there are examples for us in the scriptures, but they're not given to us as formulas. They're given to us as patterns or examples. So, Jose, I hope that helped you. Graciela writes, What's your opinion on the many denominations of Christianity, such as Orthodox and Catholics? Let me say this. It's very important to recognize that someone is not saved by belonging to a particular group. You can't get to heaven and show a membership card uh, that associates you with a particular group of believers and say, see, let me into heaven. I belong to this group. People are not saved because they belong to a particular group nor are they damned necessarily because they belong to a particular group. Because there can be individuals who belong to a group, but do not share all the beliefs of that group, whether they be orthodox, good beliefs, or whether they be heretical, bad beliefs. What it comes right down to is each individual soul must do its dealing before God. This is an important, even an essential principle for us to grab on. So we shouldn't look at salvation or damnation as a matter of belonging or not belonging to a particular group. Rather, the individual soul must deal with God. Now, as for other Christian groups, other denominations, I would simply say that Uh, Yes, there are official doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church that I think are just flat out wrong and, and sometimes harmful. There are certain philosophies and approaches in the Orthodox Church that I don't find helpful 
and I think that may be a detriment to people in their Christian life. However, in general, again, I'm speaking in very general terms, without referring to specific doctrines, in general, I praise God for the variety of believers in the Christian family. I praise God that believers have so many different ways and expressions of their true belief, as long as it is a true belief, in Jesus Christ and God's Word. Uh, I praise God for my Pentecostal brother. I praise God for my Reformed or Calvinistic brother. I praise God for Roman Catholics who truly put their faith in Jesus Christ and not fundamentally in the church or in their own works for their salvation. I praise God for Orthodox brothers and sisters who really love Jesus and pursue him, even though there are aspects of their life with God that don't resonate with me particularly at all. I praise God for these different expressions of the body of Christ. Uh, I don't know if that really answers your question there, Graciela, but I hope it's at least a helpful first step. Let me go on to the next question here from Levy. It says, why did God choose the nation Israel for the Messiah to be brought forth? Was it because Abraham's obedience to God that resulted that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him because of Jesus? Levy, that's a good question. But let me say that God freely chose Abraham and the Israelite people. I'm pretty sure it's in Jeremiah where God speaks to Israel and he says, let me tell you about Abraham. When I, cho- I'm paraphrasing, of course, God says, when I chose Abraham, he was an idol worshiping Babylonian who lived among the people of Ur of the Chaldeans. You see, uh, Abraham's faith is not noted before God. Uh, before God chose him to be the father of this Jewish people, and God chose Abraham to be the first in the line of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Jacob as his name was later changed to Israel. So this was something that God freely chose. He, He plainly says that he did not choose Israel because they were the greatest nation, or the most numerous nation, or I'll make it by extension, they weren't the holiest nation, but he chose them for his own glory. That's why God chose the Jewish people. And if I could go further on that, I believe that God is not finished with the Jewish people, and they still have a remaining role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. That is one of the reasons why the devil hates the Jewish people so much and why I believe that there is a genuinely demonic component to what we call anti-Semitism or what could maybe more properly be called Jew hatred. They have an enduring role in God's plan of the ages. Israel is God's chosen people. Now, He did not choose them all to be saved. Do you remember what I said before on the question that Graciela asked about uh, denominations and such? I said that nobody is saved just because they belong to a particular group. That is true of Israel as well. Yes, Israel is chosen, but not chosen that every one of them throughout all history would be saved and go to heaven. Israel was chosen to have a special place in God's unfolding plan of the ages. And let me tell you, I I think that many Jewish people would agree with me on this point. That chosen status has at times been a tremendous blessing for the Jewish people. That chosen status has at times been a tremendous burden for It's been said that, and I don't know if this is a quote from a particular Jewish person, 
but it's been said among the Jewish people that at times they've looked up to heaven and asked God, God, couldn't you choose somebody else? A- again, this important role they have in God's unfolding plan of the ages. It's real. At times, it's been a blessing. At times, it's been a Hope that helped you there. Um, Gracia says, uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 7, 17. What is the cup? Uh, Jeremiah telling them of God's anger? You know, uh, Gracia, I think you're correct on that. Let me turn to the passage in Jeremiah just so I can read it. I'm pretty sure I know the passage you're speaking of. But Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning now at verse 17, where we read, Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent. Well, you could go back to verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Yes, uh, Gracia, you're, you're spot on. Here, the cup is a very vivid expression of the judgment of God. The picture is something like this, that God holds out a cup to his enemies. And he holds out this cup to his enemies, and he says to them, you must drink it. And like in something from a horror movie, the, the cup is overflowing. It's, you know, this, this poisonous or bitter or terrible thing that's within the cup. But God says, no, you must drink it. This is the cup of my judgment, the cup of my anger, and I will make sure that you drink it. That picture of the cup of God's judgment is used many times in the Bible. One of the most powerful places it's used is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to God, let this cup pass from me. Jesus had in his mind the cup that represented God's wrath and judgment. And essentially what Jesus asked was he said, Father, if there is any other way to accomplish the salvation of humanity, Apart from me becoming a substitute, a sacrifice, apart from me drinking the cup of wrath and judgment, that that my people should drink instead. If there's any other way, then let's do it. But there was no other way. And so Jesus took that cup of God's wrath, of God's judgment, and he drank it. So no, I, I would say, yes, that is exactly the imagery used there in Jeremiah chapter 25 and a few other passages in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, there, we, we see Jesus talking about it uh, in um, the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, Lupe Salazar says, I saw a post that stated that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, the English word does not mean to come under, that Paul was not telling wives to come under the leadership or covering of their husband. What says you? Well, Lupi, I'm happy to answer your question, but I would also want you to to recommend you to my commentary on Ephesians chapter 5 dealing with that specific question. Uh, You may or may not know, I'm speaking to all our viewers and listeners here, but, but I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. Every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, it's a fairly substantial work. You can judge for yourself whether it's any good or if it's helpful at all, but it's, it's a lot whether or not it's good or helpful. But if you want more of my thoughts on that, take a look. Go to EnduringWord.com. Now I'll show the cup from the other angle. Uh, go to EnduringWord.com and uh, find the commentary on Ephesians chapter 5. Now, from memory, I can tell you. That the word used for submit in Ephesians chapter 5 is the word that comes basically from the military. And it means to order under. Just like in a military arrangement, there are ranks. 
you know, there's the general, there's the colonel, there's the major, there's the captain. I, I'm no expert on military ranks. I don't know if I'm giving those in the right order. But you understand there, there's ranks of people. And, and basically what that word submit in Ephesians chapter five means is to come under rank. So when the person you saw said that the English word does not mean to come under, I think that's very much the sense of it. Now, that phrase to come under doesn't capture the entirety of the word, but, but it's not a bad start because the word is specifically tied to the military. And it's in that sense that it should be used to come under rank. But again, go to my commentary at enduringword.com and you can get a better understanding where I go into it in a little more depth there in Ephesians chapter. J.S. asks, Pastor David, your thoughts about generational curses. There are young men who never met their fathers, but have the same challenges as their fathers, even though they never met their papa. Well, J.S., I would say this, that certainly there is something to do with the idea of generational influence. And that influence can be for good or for bad, or oftentimes, as it is, a combination of both. I'm sure that my children, wonderful children, they're all grown up now, uh, and just wonderful children that I'm very proud of, but, but I have no doubt that my children share some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses. Uh, there is certainly generational influence, and in part, this generational influence is tied to genetics. Because it is tied to genetics, and I don't say that it completely tracks with genetics, but there's some connection. Because it is connected to genetics, it should not surprise us that sometimes there are personality or character or, or whatever kind of similarities between a son or a daughter and the father, even if they've never met formally, even if they've never had one another in the room. So there can be environmental influence, but there's also some sense a generational or genetic influence. I would separate this from what most people describe as a generational curse. Now, I don't know if I've ever seen or remember seeing a good concrete definition of what a generational curse is, but generally the idea is that this is some kind of spiritual bondage or power or curse that extends across generations, mainly because of some kind of satanic work or something like that. I believe that when we take it out of the realm of generational influence and make it generational curses, we put people under a lot of needless fear and apprehension. How do I know that there's not someone in my ancestry who was some terrible Satan worshiper seven, eight generations ago? And there is somehow this generational curse that's going to pop up in my life or in the life of my children at any moment. No, that's living with an unreasonable fear. Here's the confidence that we have. Galatians tells us that the curse is broken in Jesus Christ. So I agree with the idea of generational influence, and some of that may have to do with genetic. But in the way that most people speak of a generational curse, we can simply easily, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of drama, definitely take these things to Jesus and believe his promise and live in his promise that the curse was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross and he bore the curse for us. Now, if somebody has a very nuanced understanding of a generational curse. 
a nuanced understanding that's much more like influence than like the kind of dark curse that I just mentioned. Well, then maybe I would say, well, I agree with what that person has to say about a generational curse. But in the way that I've mostly heard the term used, I don't think much of the idea of a generational curse. But again, there does seem to be a reality to what we would call generational influence. Continuing on, um, Sydney asks, why is baptism in the Bible? Oh, Sydney, you, you've asked a question that I think is very important, and I kind of have to restrain myself to not only answering this question, uh, because I think it's a fascinating Why is baptism in the Bible? Here's the most fundamental answer I can give. Baptism is a material or a physical demonstration of what happens to a person spiritually when they are born again. When a person is born again, they are cleansed from their sins, and a person has a ceremonial washing in baptism. When a person is born again, it's as if they have been crucified with Jesus Christ and now risen to new life. That is illustrated in baptism, what I would regard as proper baptism, baptism by immersion. When a person is buried under the water of baptism and then rises, according to the picture that Paul gave in Romans chapter 6, they rise to new life. Baptism is a material or a physical outworking and illustration of something that happens spiritually in a believer's life when they are born again. God is so gracious to us, so loving to us, to give us material connections with spiritual works. The cleansing of sin that happened when I was born again, that was spirit. Uh, the dying with Jesus and raising to new life when I was born again, that was spiritual. But God says, David, I want you to have a material connection with those things. Let's get baptized to show that, to display it, to commemorate it, to give you a material connection with the work that has been done in you. If a person has not been born again, uh, their sins are not cleansed, they uh, have not died with Christ spiritually and been risen with him spiritually, then you could dunk him underwater a hundred times and it wouldn't do any good. Okay, so that is, in my mind, the predominant meaning of baptism. Here's the thing. Baptism has more than one meaning in the Bible, in the New Testament. It also is connected to someone joining the community of believers. It is also connected with a person's decision to trust in Christ and to become part of that community. I think that people who favor the baptism of babies and infants, which is a practice that I disagree with, they emphasize too much this lesser meaning of baptism connecting somebody with the Christian community. Now, th that meaning is there in the New Testament. I'm not trying to deny that it is. But I don't think that that's the primary meaning. That is a secondary or even tertiary, meaning a, a third class connection. The primary expression of baptism in the New Testament is cleansing of sin and new life. In and unless someone would say, that those things are real in the life of a baby who's being baptized, then I don't think that they should baptize. Okay, I hope that explains it for you there, Sid. Great question. And I don't know if people can tell, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about baptism. I, I keep threatening that someday I'm going to do an extensive series of videos on why I think believers' baptism is important and why I think it's biblical as opposed to the practice of baby.
baptism. I, I obviously don't think that those who practice infant baptism or baby baptism or pedo baptism, however you want to call it, I don't think that they're heretics, but I do think that they're wrong. And I think that their being wrong in this matter has consequence and harmful consequences. All right, beyond that, let me go on to the next one. Uh, Anoye says, or Amoye says, Good afternoon, Pastor David. What is your thought on interuterine insemination, pregnancy without sex, before marriage, and should the church discipline such? Well, um, Moya, I would say that the biblical pattern is that children should come up in families and be brought up in families. And when I say families, I mean with a husband and a wife and maybe even some brothers and sisters. All the better if there's grandparents around and aunts and uncles and cousins and all the rest. Children should be brought up in family. If someone is becoming pregnant uh, deliberately, as would be in the case here with interuterine insemination, or if they're becoming pregnant by accident because of sinful conduct outside of marriage, that doesn't seem to fit God's pattern. Now, the question is, could there ever be exceptions to this? We don't have, to my knowledge, if I'm forgetting some passage, then please be gracious to me and inform me. But we don't have a specific command in the scriptures that only married people can have children. There's never the command in scripture that should God forbid a husband or a wife, a mother or a father in a marriage should die, that they should give up the children for adoption. So I don't think that we have a command saying absolutely prohibit it, but neither do we have a pattern that reinforces it. I would leave this up to the judgment and the discretion of the local church leadership, because one aspect of this is the reasons for the person doing this. What are their reasons? And that would be something that would be known much better by the local church leadership. I don't think we can make a universal law or rule for this, but we can leave it up to the Holy Spirit speaking to and guiding local church leadership. And uh, that local church leadership should take that responsibility seriously and seek the Lord and seek the most information that they can about the situation so that they can give guidance to fellow believer. All right, let me continue on here. Um, Gracia says, very much appreciate enduring word, by the way. Love watching your messages as I go through my daily Bible reading. Well, Gracia, thank you for that. I am always blessed to hear that people uh, use my commentary or use uh, the audio or video teaching just in conjunction with their daily Bible study. And in connection with that, boy, I'm, I'm terrible at marketing. This is awful. I should have in my hand right before you a copy of the just published daily devotional that we've come out with. A daily devotional that has 365 devotions for every day that I've written you see, over the last 20 plus years, maybe even 25 years, yeah, it is 25 years. Uh, over the last 25 years, I've written a weekly devotional that I send out by email. We've collected 365 of those. Thank you, Ruth, for all your excellent help in doing that. We've collected 365 of those, and uh, that is available for you to purchase on Amazon. I wish I could show you the cover. But it's simply called Enduring Words. So you take the name of my website, Enduring Word, add an S to the end, Enduring Words. And if you just search on Amazon for David Guzik Enduring Words, you'll see the devotional and uh, you can buy it. 
shortly, I'd say within a week or so, it will also be available on Kindle. So I hope that could be a blessing to a few people. All right, let me continue on here. God bless you, just saying. West says, hello, Pastor David. How would you know if a pastor backslid and how do you follow him? Well, West, look, let's face it. Sin can remain hidden sometimes for a long time. And backsliding, this condition where a person really isn't in close fellowship with God, and there is in some sense a regression, a decline in their spiritual life and commitment and vitality. That can happen in ways that are not obvious to people who look from the outside. So I don't know if there is a specific way. Look, I mean, I have known of men, pastors, who seem to have thriving, successful ministries, and then it is exposed that they were involved in a significant sin and had been for a long time. And somebody might say, well, how would you know? How would you know? And it can be very difficult to know. However, uh, how do you follow him? If you know that there is significant compromise or sin in a pastor's life, you need to carefully judge whether or not that person is qualified to be in spiritual leadership over you. If you do not have confidence in their spiritual leadership, which, by the way, is not a call by any means for people to be spiritually perfect. None of us fall into that. Of course, every person will fail and every pastor has his weaknesses and failings. And I know that people can sometimes knowingly or unknowingly exaggerate and overemphasize and focus and blow out of proportion the weaknesses that a pastor has. At the same time, there are some things that so damage the reputation of a pastor that it would mean that they should not be in spiritual leadership anymore. I'm sorry, Wes, that I can't give you an any more definite answer to that. But I would say that uh, if you suspect perhaps that a pastor is backsliding, but don't have evidence of it, pray that God would reveal the truth about a person's life. That's always a good prayer to pray. And we should live and serve in a way where if the truth of our life was exposed, we would not be greatly ashamed. Or look, honestly, maybe a little bit ashamed. Every one of us has sins. What we just rather be? I, I, I don't want people to know how angry or frustrated I got a day or two ago over this or that circumstance. But if it was revealed, I, I wouldn't be ruined. I'd be embarrassed. I'd say, well, yeah, I'm asking for God to deal with that in my life. Yet, if there was another area of compromise so egregious, so deep, then that might be another reason. I hope that helps you there. Or West. Let me continue on here. Jordan says, Hello, Pastor David. Number one, do, do you believe God would allow a polygamous relationship to continue after salvation if we had a modern-day Solomon who got saved? And number two, do you believe that it is a sin to drink alcohol? Jordan, I don't know if I can give you a satisfactory answer to these questions, but let me do my best. First of all, number one, do I believe that God would allow a polygamous relationship to continue after salvation? I can give you the wisdom, the insight that I have received from pastors and missionaries and Christian workers whom I know have served the Lord in Africa where they have dealt with tribal peoples among whom polygamy was common. And let's say that a husband who had several wives 
came to Christ, they would be faced with the question, what do we do? This is the approach that most all of them have taken. And it's not an easy course, but it's what they've taken. This is what they say. They say, okay, well, first of all, you would do more harm than good to your wives and to the children of those wives, to your children, if you were divorced them. Nevertheless, the situation that you're in is not good. So what you must do is this. Number one, you must treat all your wives fairly and equally. Number two, you must not add any additional wives to your family, so to speak. And then number three, you can never be in church leadership because you do not fit the qualifications spoken of in the pastoral epistles. You are not the husband of one wife. You are the husband of several. The main reason I know that pastors and Christian workers and missionaries have taken this approach is because they have seen that more harm. Well, first of all, let's say there is not a specific command in the New Testament or in the Old Testament for that matter for someone who has more than one wife to divorce their uh, wives when they come to Christ. We, we don't have that command. If there was such a command, then we would do it no matter what the outcome. Because there is not such a command, we, we see this as being the kind of thing that would say more harm than good would come from doing this. Therefore, again, uh, don't add any more wives. Treat your wives equally and fairly and understand that you're not qualified for church leadership. Because uh, Polygamy, having more than one wife, goes outside of God's plan. And ultimately, it's never for the good. So that, that's what we would do. Secondly, your question is, do you believe that it is a sin to drink alcohol? All right, well, let me give you the most straightforward answer that I could give to that. Excuse me, I went far too down in the questions here. Uh, do you believe it's a sin to drink alcohol? The most straightforward answer I could give you that is, um, no with reservations. The Bible does not condemn all consumption of alcohol. It absolutely condemns drunkenness. If you drink to the point where you are impaired or drunk, that's a sin. However, there are many people, not everybody, but there are many people who can drink without becoming impaired or drunk. Now, there are two uh, important exceptions to this. Number one, the case of those who would stumble a weaker brother. And it's important to understand, when we talk about stumbling a weaker brother, we're not talking about stumbling the legalism of another brother, but we're talking about stumbling the weakness of another brother. So that if Brother Joe feels he has the liberty to have a drink without getting drunk, that would be sin. But Brother Joe has the liberty to do that. And Brother John has an alcoholic past, and he knows that he cannot drink even one drop. And if Joe drinks in the presence of John, it would be a torturous temptation of John. Therefore, Joe should not do it. He should not do it because he has the risk of stumbling his brother, offending his brother. So there's that exception. The other exception is this. There is wisdom for Christian leaders to abstain from alcohol. I'm not going to say that it is an absolute law. God forbid that we would turn uh, something that God has not said, has not commanded into a command. I'm just saying this. From my observation, there is wisdom for Christian leaders to abstain from alcohol, either entirely or most. And that has been the pattern of my own. So that's the answer that I would give. All right, friends, I look now 
we are up at the hour point of our time together. And that's usually where I wrap it up. Now, this makes me sad because I see so many questions that I have not answered. But I tell you what I'm going to do. We make a copy of the entire chat, especially the questions that I didn't get to, and I will get to them in a later Q&A. Or you are completely invited to join me next Thursday. Get in earlier and ask your question earlier, and I would be happy to get to your particular question. Uh, I'm very happy that we could start out today's question and answer time with a question that I didn't get to last week. And uh, maybe we'll do even more of that in. So pleased that you could join us. Please continue to pray for the ministry of Enduring Word. God is opening up some thrilling doors for the work we have of translating my Bible commentary into other languages. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. I'm just saying God is opening up some thrilling doors. Your prayers. And your financial support, if God should so lead you, are uh, so appreciated. And we are so blessed to be able to do this work that God gives us. So God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope that you can meet us next week. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.